Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. This week, we host Lord Ken Clark. Lord Clark has been the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Home Secretary, Secretary of State for Health, and so much more. With Lord Clark, we sit down to discuss economics, politics, and so much more. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Just to begin with, how have you been adjusting to life under lockdown? I, well, I find it extremely boring, and I'm using the telephone very much more than I used to. I used to be averse to spending too long on the telephone, but of course I keep in touch with many friends by speaking far more regularly to them and at greater length on the telephone, and of course my family I keep in touch with that way. Uh, apart from my son, who's near enough to be my support bubble and see him. So I'm all right. I'm sort of perfectly you know, well in myself. Uh, I haven't found any new aches and strains as a, a man of my age during it all. Uh, but it, it is an extremely limited way of life. Right? It's a very great pity that our, our quality of life has been damaged so badly for the last 12 months. But I share that with every other, every other person. So... Just to, looking at your experience, you've worked in government from the Whip's office to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. How does one's understanding of government differ from all these different positions within it? Well, you just acquire whatever broader knowledge as you go on. If, you're, if you have, as you, as you say, in my case, a very long and much reshuffled career, um, you keep being moved to departments that you didn't really think you'd ever find yourself at. You find yourself immersed in the work of the new department. You acquire knowledge of it, and then you get reshuffled again. Uh, it, it's a rather fascinating process, so I hugely enjoyed it. Um, for some reason, uh, my career, I think, it really did last on the front bench far longer than anybody else uh, of my generation or who's alive today. And so it, it was um, an absolutely fascinating experience in which all the way through... Uh, I tried to achieve what I wanted to achieve in politics, which was every now and again to think you might have a chance of making a small personal difference to policy and the course of events and actually set out for yourself an agenda which you thought was in the public interest and make as much progress as you could towards achieving it. But it's uh, I, I, I just became a political addict. I was quite fascinated by it, and I enjoyed pretty well every job I had. Which areas of making a difference do you feel that you're most proud of? Well, firstly, the ones that I enjoyed most and I'm most proud of uh, were my spells at health. I had two. First as Minister of State, and then after a short break, I became secretary elsewhere. I became secretary of state. Uh, and on, the, on all the experience I achieved with health crises in my first stint, I embarked on a very ambitious, very controversial course of reform when I was Secretary of State, and I'm extremely glad I did. It was a bitter, uh, extraordinary battle, principally with the British Medical Association, the Doctors' Trade Union, uh, who always resisted to change. But we got it through in the end. It's never been repealed. It was continued by the Blair government eventually, taking it much further than I would have been able to do as a Conservative. Uh, And although things are changing now, it's still very much there today. It's given them uh, a system of uh, management, which is still far from perfect, management information so they know what they're doing and what they're spending the money on, and they makes more concentration on uh, value for money for patients 
out come the patients. When I first arrived, like everything else in the early 80s, we were just dominated by industrial relations and what this year's pay settlement uh, was going to be like. And the Treasury? Well, I took over the recovery from a, a, a recession, which had been caused by errors that the government had made at the end of the 1980s. Uh, and uh, I, I managed to get hold of it. Uh, it. It took a fairly orthodox approach to monetary and fiscal policy, but that involved tightening fiscal policy and controlling monetary policy to keep an eye on inflation and to make sure we didn't have any more bust, you know, bust and boom uh, cycles. You took the top off the economic cycle. And I think over the four years, I achieved you know, growth with low inflation on an unprecedented level since the war. Had the pleasure of handing over when we lost for quite other reasons in 1997 to a government which said it would stick with my figures for tax and spending, stick with my basic policy for its first three years, which they did rather too rigidly, actually. They should have responded to events a bit more. Uh, and so I, I was extremely, I, I, I look back with pleasure on those. Now, you described two key ways in which the Blair and Cameron governments diverge from Major and Thatcher's style of government, um, which nowadays have became a common feature of political life. So first, for a lack of cabinet discussion and more of a presidential system, and second, a capitulation to the 24-hour news media. Yeah, I, I, I refer to those in my uh, memoirs, I think, because I didn't refer to them in my answer. There were, were quite big changes in the long run. I mean, the Blair government wasn't a bad government apart from this one catastrophic error, uh, plunging us into the invasion of Iraq and working with the Americans on uh, policies that were wholly destructive of our relationships in the Middle East and indeed of stability in the Middle East. Um, but apart from that, it was okay, not least because uh, Tony was an admirer of Thatcher, uh, secretly. Uh, he didn't agree with her, of course, on everything, but he wished to produce a modern social democrat version of an economy restructured as we've done it and, and, and based on, you know, rules-based international order and all the things that we had uh, given such priority to when we were in the Thatcher and major governments. Unfortunately, what happens is if you have a government that's in power for a very long time and the Conservatives, you know, were in power from 1979 to 1997, I think 18 years, Absolutely nobody at the top of the Blair government had ever been in government before. And Tony and Gordon had very strong ideas, but no experience of cabinet government and the value of exposing those ideas to the collective discussion of your colleagues. So you build a collective approach and you improve policies by actually letting all your senior people contribute uh, and contribute to the policies of the government as a whole, not just go away and deliver their bit in their department. And cabinet governments never really uh, recovered from that. Uh, I think Tony was persuaded that, you know, just to keep the, the place in order, and also for political reasons, he should have some cabinet decisions, but he was never fully persuaded them. He started... They no intention of having them at all. Uh, the then cabinet secretary once told me uh, that when they came to take their first really crucial decision within a few weeks, 
which was to make the Bank of England independent, the Cabinet Secretary said, well, presumably we'll put this on the agenda for the next Cabinet, which he got replied from Tony Blair, what's it got to do with them? Uh, and uh, he had to be never quite got drawn back from that. And unfortunately, his successors, Gordon Brown, and then David Cameron, despite David having talked in opposition about rebuilding cabinet government, followed the precedent and decided they preferred to run the government uh, with their own immediate friends and entourage. And they also acquired this army of special advisors in number 10 who made efforts to exercise the prime minister's power themselves and again had a rather disparaging effect attitude towards the collective government and even some cabinet ministers and so on. Uh, and cabinet government has never really recovered. Margaret would never make a major policy change without it being discussed. No one can make a policy change in her time without first discussing it in the cabinet committee. Quite a bit could be achieved there. If the cabinet committee couldn't agree, or if it was really, really a big issue, go to full cabinet, where half the cabinet would take in discussions. We sometimes had, we usually had very constructive discussions, sometimes amazing rows. Uh, and the Prime Minister, Bunker Thatcher, contrary to the spitting image version of her cabinet that everybody believes was the case, uh, although she spoke for the entire time herself and tried to get her views to prevail, was defeated in cabinet more than once. And on hindsight, usually defeated in the cabinet for very sound reasons. Uh, and she followed the pattern of cabinet government that had gone back for about the previous 50 years. And it's better than the present one, where cabinet ministers are no longer given their full role in government as a whole. There are far too many staff in Downing Street trying to second-guess uh, try, or trying to impose their own ideas on individual departments. Far too much briefing of the media, but all the discussions and rows going on inside the government are all cheerily briefed by ministers and by their special advisers in advance. And it's a less effective form of government, in my view. To focus on that point about the media, you've stated before that you believe that Margaret Thatcher's reform agenda never would have achieved popular support as it was happening, and that um, David Cameron has acted very heavily to please focus groups. How do you think this awareness of the media cycle and how do you think this lack of cabinet discussion has changed the type of policy which has taken place? Well, obviously politicians have always had to have some regard for the media and the media have often influenced results. We've had a campaign in media for the 20th century and the 21st century so far. The government would have its own policies which it would then try to sell the media, try to sell the public if they failed, they were unpopular. To, if they failed to do that, and the policies were unpopular but important, you carried out the, the, the policies, you defended them, you explained them, and if they worked, and if they produced improvement over uh, the course of time, actually you find public opinion changed and the media changed, and suddenly nobody remembered they ever opposed it. And that's how the Thatcher government worked. We rarely had a, a popular... Uh, policy and the government's policies, as opposed to market, were often the media would make great attempts to tear them apart. I've already referred to my uh, health uh, service reforms, which 
Well, ludicrously reported in the media, let alone the sort of extraordinary attacks made upon them. Now, what happened? Tony, aware of this, brought in Alistair Campbell as an absolutely key figure. Now, Alistair is a nice chap. I get on with him and I have a lot of regard for him, but he's a journalist. And he thought the most important thing he could do was to make sure that the government got a better write-ups in the newspapers. And increasingly, it was true of David as well. The spads and people who were supported in this growing number 10 staff, they have a giant staff there now. Margaret didn't have a department in her own, in, in number 10 in the cabinet office, really, uh, compared to the numbers they have now. They're all people who think the most important thing is next week's headlines and how this will play with the focus groups. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the, is the national interest, what the government's view is of the national interest, and when you're inventing policies, not how is this going to be reported in the Daily Mail next Tuesday, but how is it going to impact the life of the country in two, three, four years' time? When you're making policy, you should think of the medium term, the longer term, the effect on society and the effect on the nation as a whole. And, and that has diminished as a, an aim. And, and still living day to day with the newspapers is the case. It's, it's true of the present government. Uh, there's a great danger the present government hesitates because they think it's going to be things it's got to do are going to be unpopular. It always faces ferocious lobbying from people who are affected every time it takes a COVID measure. And it doesn't always resist the lobbies. They get any good press, it gives in to them after about a fortnight. Uh, and uh, that's a process that started with Tony Blair, and I'm afraid has grown steadily worse, in the opinion of, uh, no doubt, uh, 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 an old veteran like me. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is not as good a system of government as it was. Uh, when I first started. So you discussed there how one makes policy and that when one does it, they should be considering the medium term. So when it comes to the balancing of interests in the making of policy, you've talked before about how Ted Heath's um, economic policy was dominated by William Armstrong, or on the opposite side of the spectrum, how Howard Lawson defined Margaret Thatcher's economic policy success. What do you think makes for the most effective relationship between number 10 and number 11 Downing Street? The, the relationship between number 10 and number 11 is always going to be tense uh, because they have different priorities. Uh, the Prime Minister is thinking of his legacy. He's thinking of the government as a whole. He's trying to keep all the balls in the air. He has short-term political pressures. He has long-term aims of his own. Uh, and uh, certainly the most popular course you can follow in almost most areas, is just to keep spending more money on it and not to raise taxation to pay for it. Uh, that, 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 although, you know, in the end, prime ministers realise that common sense you know, has to prevail. The, the Chancellor, above all, is the one person in the government who is constantly concerned with the fiscal position, the monetary position, keeping the economy on an even course, and making sure that the government doesn't cause uh, an economic decline or a financial crisis by giving in to the temptation to just throw money at things where it wants to do good. Uh, and uh, yeah, John Major and I were great friends. We didn't have great rows and we worked together well. But he, 
would give me his opinion, but, but he really never tried to overrule me. He let me get on with it. We discussed it all the time. He was the one member of the cabinet who knew exactly what I was up to and what I was intending to do and so on. Uh, he followed the old advice, like it was Baldwin, I can't remember what it was now, the duty of the Prime Minister is to advise and to warn his Chancellor, which he did. And I listened to Don's very wise and sensible advice. And I was therefore, he was able to get me to think again and modify what I was doing. But uh, it gets more difficult nowadays because this populist politics, this media-based politics, uh, means that practically the entire government uh, works out that you get the best write-ups and you have the best short-term effects on the opinion polls if you throw money at a problem in response to the lobbies and you avoid the question of paying for it because it's throwing money at things is in the short-term popular with the public. Raising taxes is very unpopular with the public, particularly the ones who are going to have to pay the taxes. So the Chancellor, all the time, has to have a very powerful <laughs> influence in the government and has to be a restraining influence. And depending on the temperaments of people, how they get on, this can cause real troubles with the Prime Minister who, who just, uh, just just thinks that the Chancellor is making difficulties and is going to do the government's reputation harm and its popularity harm if, he, if he's allowed to have his way. Uh, Rishi is going to have his work cut out. He's had his work cut out all the way through just getting people to you know, spend a lot of money, we have to spend money in the right and sensible way to preserve the viable economy, but not to start believing that there's free money now and you can <laughs> no longer have to have regard to value for money. And, and you know, the Chancellor can just give you what you want to do what you want to have a short-term popular success. Now, uh, I, don't, I have no idea how Rishi and the present Prime Minister Boris are getting on. But the tensions between them are there. And, of course, individual members of the Cabinet tend to be tightly, their big priority is getting the money they think they need in their department. So Chancellor can have a rather lonely job sometimes. How do you feel that academic economics filters through to policymakers? Well, it doesn't very much. Well, I, I did think when I was Chancellor... Uh, that economics as an academic subject had gone slightly off the rails. It was, it may have improved. I mean, I'm out of date. I say I haven't followed academic uh, economics uh, since I was chancellor, uh, particularly. Um, in my day, the, uh, it was becoming far too much a branch of rather obscure mathematics, and was becoming far too theoretical. And some of the things that were emerging were you know, being given a weight that they shouldn't have been. And the main practical thing I found in the department was it was the early days of economic modelling. You know, don't forget that it was, this was the birth of the computer age. It was a very primitive stage uh, when I was Chancellor. And one or two of my senior officials were a bit too seized on the amazing economic model they've got, which they always wanted me to study before I used to a, 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 a budget, and they thought should have a very powerful say. And I thought this was all rather an academic, rather knockabout process. And all the economic models that they then got seemed to predict was that things were going to happen rather as they had 
in the past uh, and that the next financial crisis will be exactly the same as the previous one and the next recession will be caused by the same things as the previous one. Whereas in my opinion, no two recessions repeat themselves, no two financial crises repeat themselves. And in the real world, you're always surprised by something that you never foresaw happening. That's why it becomes a crisis because you see it too late. How important do you think a knowledge of history is for politicians, policymakers? Well, as I'm fascinated by political history in particular, uh, but particularly I, I, I get fascinated in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and I go back to that sometimes. Uh, I think the sense of history is hugely important. It gives you that perspective that enables you to do what I've already said I think is most important for a practicing politician. It enables you to form your own ideas of what you're doing it for. Why uh, is, what you're, is what you're doing in the national interest? How do you think the national interest in various areas of policy could best be improved? And what, therefore, is your agenda going to be where once you've acquired the political skills, the subtleties, the two steps forward, one step back, the advocacy of the policy as well as the policy itself, how are you going to advance your agenda to make a lasting difference? If you look back at history and see the extraordinary changes that take place in most people's lifetimes, try to decide how or why politically they happened, then you know, you're making progress. Talk about the temptation to prioritise the short run at the detriment of the, the medium run with economic policy. Now, one way that that's been dealt with in the last 20 years is to make various elements of economic policy politically independent. For example, um, the Bank of England in 1997, we've already mentioned, and then financial policy reform. So insofar as monetary policy used to be the task of an individual, i.e. you as the last chancellor who, who kind of had that control, how do you think the decision-making has changed with monetary policy now being decided by an independent committee? Well, I, I, I think it's absolutely essential that the Bank of England retains full independence and retains responsibility for monetary policy. I think it's uh, what I've already described, what I regard as the increasing populism and short-termism and over-influence of the media that's grown steadily uh, over the last 20-odd uh, years. Um, in, those, in that situation, you need a, 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 a genuinely independent body to take responsibility for monetary policy and pursue it with some expertise and with some single-minded regard towards economic stability and keeping inflation under control. And it's never been more important. And it's worked pretty well. Uh, it's worked pretty well. Um, when I did interest rates, uh, rather famously, I didn't always agree with Eddie George, the then governor, but and, and I insisted to try and stop my colleagues interfering with it in publishing the minutes of meetings, which revealed the amazement of the world that sometimes Eddie and I hadn't totally agreed. But we were never apart by more than 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent. You know, it, it, it was not it was not a, a, a fundamental our approach to policy was exactly 
the same. And I, something, I, I, looking back, probably was, I wouldn't, you know, I overdid slightly the frequent small changes to interest rates, which were then quite popular around the world. So I'd, I'd be, it'd be up quarter percent sometimes, down quarter percent sometimes. I responded to the changing mood of the market and the, the, the real economy, really, was what I was talking about. Nowadays, you know, if you put interest rates into the same sort of bag uh, as everything else, the populism will be very difficult to resist. I mean, the first time I raised interest rates, John Major was dismayed. He was absolutely beside himself. He, he said, there'd be no one who raised interest rates since he was Chancellor's checker. And for a brief odd moment, he seemed to think that this was now permanently going to be the case. And uh, he didn't talk me out of the that small quarter percent increase I was making. In order to modify him, I, I did agree that I should hold a press conference to explain it. And in fact, the press conference went off perfectly harmlessly, and there wasn't much fuss about it. After that, John and everybody else worked on the basis, uh, the same basis that Eddie George would have wished us to, was what would the economic consequences of actually raising or lowering interest rates? That's what we stuck to. That is what the Bank of England committee sticks to, and I think that's a safer place for these difficult decisions. You, 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 you can't go back to the days before the independent Bank of England when some prime ministers would try and get their chancellor to cut interest rates on the eve of a difficult party conference, just to improve the mood there. Uh, and it's one reason why uh, our economic uh, progress in the 1960s and particularly the 1970s was so absolutely disastrous even then, because politicians were misusing the instruments of monetary policy and not concentrating as the Bank of England does, on what the effect is going to be on the real economy, what the effect is going to be on the financial world. So to step back from this debate about, or this discussion into policy, and to look more so at party politics. Now, it is just the case that the Conservative Party has been phenomenally successful over the last hundred years. Do you think that's because they're the natural party of governments, wherein their, their values just align closely with the British people's values? Or do you think they've been lucky to face a weak opposition throughout a lot of that time? I think the Conservative Party has been the centre-right party for most of that time. And so sometimes it's done some of the most radical reforms. It's, it's, um, uh, but it's, it's a cautious party and I believe that if you make change, usually it's the gradualness of change. Although in recent years uh, we, we have reformed things rather more dramatically. Um, and it was the policy of the sensible, sound, hard-working middle class and quite a lot of the working class who thought uh, they were more competent. Uh, I think the, the, the bedrock of the loyalty of so many people in the Conservative Party in the old days when we were the natural governing party was, well, at least, you know, they're safer with the money and cause less upset. Uh, the Liberal Party died for a whole variety of reasons in the First World War. The Labour Party has always tended to be more ideological, more dramatic, and so on. But sometimes you need a Labour government. You know, the Conservative, the Conservative government that was, uh, you know, when we lost in 1997, it was time for a change. And we were actually followed by a perfectly reasonable Labour government. 
Uh, you know, um, the, the only Labour leaders who could win elections were people like Harold Wilson and Roy Jenkins, who could win over enough of that section of the, policy, uh, the population who, above all, wanted a competent and reasonably trustworthy government without a period of not too radical Labour government take over for a time. Uh, nowadays, that's all changed. The uh, I mean, public opinion as well as the political parties have changed. We have polarisation. We have the growth in extremism. Well, when it's not extremism, it's just a desire for short-term, simplistic answers to everything which the governments are meant to provide and which the political parties too often like to step in and you know, attempt to provide. So the, 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 the basis of the Conservative Party's um, success over a hundred years that well whatever you think of them they know what they're doing and, and they're up to it and they they don't cause too much upset. I hope it's still there, but it's it's not there in quite the way it was at the moment. The, all our politics is not dominated by COVID. It's rather wild, short-term, populist, and um, a, a little bit less settled. Do you see that movement towards populism as um, part of an international change post-financial crisis, as people just leap for something a bit different? Or do you see it as reflecting different trends? Where do you see that jump towards populism as coming from? Oh, you're asking some very profound questions now. I don't know what the under... I think the old social order was very rigid, very stable... Uh, we, we, we all strive for equality of opportunity. We did have, in Britain, we were lucky we had a more fluid society than most, although, you know, we did have a lot of established national interests. We had a great blocks of opinion that the blue-collar industrial workers who were loyal to the labor movement and trade union movement, as well as the middle-class establishment who were solidly loyal to conservative values, conservative parties. So that's all gone. But I think with a much more diverse and educated population, uh, people are much, have much stronger views of their own on all sorts of issues than they used to have. Uh, campaigning, lobby groups, and so on, become much better organized. And uh, public opinion is more fragmented, I mean, people more ferociously determined that where they have fierce views on one or two particular subjects, uh, they are the views they're going to vote for, and those are the views they want to see. So we now have a more multi-party parliament. Uh, we have a much more fractured public opinion. Uh, and we have a public opinion that moves faster than it used to do. It is The party political system has to adjust to that. It's adjusted to do it in rather an odd way at times. And the big political parties are both prone to being taken over by the more slightly hardline elements in their activist groups. But the activists in the Labour Party have always been more left-wing than the parliamentary party and the leadership. And the activists in the Conservative Party have always been more right-wing than their uh, leadership. And under Corbyn, and to an extent over Brexit and Boris Johnson, the two parties have both been taken over uh, by the more hardline elements of their party who previously had never actually controlled either party, uh, although they'd all been there. 
and had certainly never won power. So recently on the podcast, we hosted David Willits, and we discussed his work with the Resolution Foundation, wherein he saw the Tory party's inability to gain young voters as a key existential problem. I mean, would you agree? Do you think this is an issue? Um, yes, it's, it's, the people we're missing out on uh, are young, educated, reasonably successful people. Uh, the, 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 the people who, you know, young graduates who embarked on a reasonably good career. Now, when I started in politics, such people uh, were absolutely natural voters for the Conservative Party, overwhelmingly. Now, the Conservative Party gets a minority of them, because uh, they're ne- less prone to the populist, rather lightweight, short-term solutions which the rest of the population demand. Um, hence, the geographical pattern of voting has changed because the Conservative Party is very vulnerable in the uh, where the young, educated, successful have tended to congregate in recent years, unfortunately, which is the home counties and those other parts of the country. We, we lose extraordinary seats that we used to win quite comfortably, but we're very strong in, in, in some of the more left-behind uh, industrial areas of the northern Midlands, where a quite different vote votes Conservative uh, at the moment, temporarily, I suspect, but they are at the moment. So the, the, the whole pattern, the old pattern, is rather broken up, and it does lead, as David obviously was saying, to a, a worrying loss of younger voters, because there's quite a gulf in the voting intentions of younger people and the voting intentions of my generation, where. I'm in a minority. As a conservative, I'm in the majority. But with some of my opinions, like my pro-European ones, I'm certainly in a minority. Do you think that the Conservative Party can, can, can continue to stand by its Eurosceptic position when it needs to scoop up young voters? Or do you just think it should accept that the landscape has changed and it doesn't appeal as much to these people anymore? I, I think we're all going to have to go through a, a, a rather formidable process of accepting that things have changed. And that's true of Brexiteers as much as Remainers. Uh, obviously, I'm deeply disappointed that the, we've decided to leave the European project, which I've been a lifelong believer in, and uh, you know, I'd much have preferred it if in that strange referendum with its very tight result, the country had voted to remain. But we have left, and I think it's a fact of life now politicians should accept that we have left. Now, that having been done, it's the duty of everybody to step back, stop arguing as we used to for our pro-European principles or anti-EU principles, whichever we held, and decide what's the relationship going to be now? Because what we must have is close, friendly political relationships with our powerful neighbour, uh, the bloc in the European Union, uh, where we must have the best possible economic and trading relationships with them. And we must settle down to a normality where the Western Alliance, where NATO, relationships between Europe and America are all on a sound basis to look after our interests in an ever uncertain world. We're not surprisingly, because it's the wounds of Brexit are so recent, we're not, haven't moved very far 
if somebody like me starts making comments on the post-Brexit situation now in our trade, there's a tendency for the other side to say, oh, he's just an old Ramona. He just actually tried to reverse the result of the referendum and what the Parliament has decided. Um, on the Brexit, on the Brexiteer side, they're still trying to score silly points off Europe, uh, finding uh, things they can change, which they say the Europe would have stopped us changing just for the sake of it, or uh, refusing to recognise the EU ambassador on, uh, in order to play to the Brexit gallery when every other country in the world accepts that the EU ambassador is an extremely important ambassador and has all the full status and protection for every other diplomat who you acknowledge in your capital and so on. And, and uh, one hopes over the next few months, as we settle down to Brexit, a kind of consensus will, will come where let's forget that he was a Remainer or she was a Brexiteer or her. What we're now all concentrating on is the best relationship for Britain with our powerful, very powerful globally, uh, neighbour and closest political and economic partner. How do we make independent United Kingdom have a proper relationship, a beneficial one for both of us with Europe, just as the Canadians have to constantly work out how to coexist with the United States? You've talked about how engagement with Eurosceptics led to both the Cameron government and their major government losing significant elections. So if it's the case that they seem so politically toxic, how was it that Eurosceptics have eventually taken, under, taken over the party and achieved such headway? What was toxic was the bitter division that Europe has caused uh, it's always been there. We've always had a Eurosceptic wing. You know, I, was in, I was in the Whip's office in the Parliament where we joined the European Union, and Enoch Powell led a, a, a very strong uh, post-imperialist uh, anti-European wing of the party in voting against him. We got in on a, on a cross-party vote with the Jenkinsites, um, and both parties have always been divided on Europe. The Conservative divide, particularly after the fall of Margaret Thatcher, became a bitter internal feud which did ever-increasing harm to the government. It was that that caused the government to be swept out of office in 1997. Uh, and it was, of course, the, the consequences of the referendum uh, that caused Cameron to lose office. Uh, 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 and it, it has been an ever more difficult and bitter divide, which Boris who's emerged from the winning side as the leader, has got, actually, to try steadily to close. If he, he just turns the party into a, a, a Brexit party and tries to purge it, he's purged it a bit, of its leading lights in the more moderate internationalist European as well as wing and so on, uh, the Conservative Party will become much less electable. So three questions just to wrap up. First of all, um, this podcast is listened to predominantly by a lot of undergraduates. Which books would you recommend to them? Which books do you think undergraduates in economics should read? Well, I narrow my mind by reading political biography and autobiography. 
back in, thanks to lockdown, getting through the vast piles of books I've got, and I never reread them. I've got so many that I've bought over the years I tend to read. I reread Roy Jenkins' Life of Asquith. Now, what bearing that has on today's politics is not quite sure. The world of politics is very different. But it, it's, it, it is a political book. It gives you a feel, uh, a, a rather a crisis-ridden feel, because the events of the before the First World War and during the First World War and the political crises and the Liberal Party and so on were pretty dramatic stuff, which uh, Asquith, who was a highly intelligent, sophisticated guy, uh, presided over and got buffeted out by and was eventually destroyed by. But... Uh, and I remember how much I enjoyed it when I first read it. I just reread it. And uh, if you ask me to recommend a book, it's, uh, I see no reason to hesitate in recommending it to other people to read. And then final question, just to finish up, what gives you hope? What well, gives me hope? Well, firstly, I'm a natural optimist. And if you look back at some of the dreadful crises that we've been through, uh, you know, I just believe, I have a faith in humanity, and I think the vast majority of my fellow citizens are perfectly sensible, reasonable people, perfectly reasonable and honest and you know, pleasant commitment to their society, but hopes for their own uh, quality of life and for their families. And amazingly, uh, even when we seem to have got ourselves into the most appalling mess, which we have several times in my lifetime, let alone over history, it, it all seems to sort itself out in the end. But never, the fascination of politics is you can never predict it. It never sorts itself out in quite the way that you ever expected. Lord Clark, thank you for your time. Okay. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time.